Today's episode is brought to you by Wiley Neuroscience. You can follow them on Facebook and at Neuroscience on Twitter. Man, they must have jumped on the Twitter bandwagon pretty early. Anyways, go follow them, uh, and here's today's episode. This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Yeah, that's me, Matt Davis, and yeah, this is Brain Matters. And in addition, I'm joined with my co-host, Anthony Lacanino. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing fantastic, man. 2017, new year. New happy, year. happy new year, everyone. Happy new, new year, new podcast. New year, new podcast. Although this is the same podcast. It is the same podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what that podcast is for any new listeners maybe in the new year? Yeah, so we're two graduate students at the University of Texas at Austin, and we're fortunate to be able to be exposed to neuroscientists from all around the country and the globe even. And we sit them down and we talk to them about their current research and uh, some of their personal stories. We just want to get to know them a little bit better and share that conversation with you guys. Yeah, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we hope that you guys learn a little bit about science and we hope you learn about the scientist and about kind of like what life is like asking these kinds of questions. And hopefully uh, you guys find that entertaining. Thanks for listening. Yeah, boom. Okay, we got that reset out of the way. On to this episode. Yeah, tell us, uh, who did you talk to today? I talked to Dr. David McCormick, who's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Yale University. That sounds great. Could you tell me a little bit about the research that he's doing? Dr. McCormick studies a lot of things, but one of the most fascinating aspects of his research is on oscillations in the brain. Your brain gets in certain states, uh, which are oscillatory, and these are synchronized activity in the brain. And you can measure these things through EEG. And uh, there's different states when you're awake and attending versus when you're asleep and uh, or in uh, slow wave sleep or REM sleep. So these oscillations, it's like a, a wave that's going up and down uh, and it has different frequencies related to different behavioral states, right? So some of these behavioral states, such as being attentive or being drowsy, correlate with certain brain oscillations. And Dr. McCormick has found a kind of novel way of telling the state of the animal, the brain state, the oscillation, through this very novel mechanism. I'm going to leave it for the interview. Oh, okay, cool. Before we actually, uh, before, before the re- big reveal of that. But wouldn't it be fascinating if you could predict performance on a particular task by measuring something that is not direct brain activity? So you're saying that you could predict whether or not I'm going to make this basketball into this hoop if you could see if you could predict what my brain state was? Well, I've seen you shoot hoops before, Anthony, and it's not exactly uh, optimal performance. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, you, you could just so, guess I'll miss it. However, if you had taken uh, a, a semester of, of basketball training a and then... <laughs> <laughs> Go to basketball PhD well, school. I, I was imagining like you went to community college like after after you got done with research and you're, okay, you're yeah. palling around <laughs> with some of those students. But uh, imagine that. And then you were, you were well trained, but I was also measuring something and I could predict whether you were going to make a basket or not. That's essentially what Dr. McCormick is able to do in this task with the animals he's studying. That's fascinating, being able to predict the future behavioral outcome based on some sort of signature is is very cool. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with what he calls this optimal state uh, of the brain, uh, this optimal oscillatory state. Some people have 
call it this flow state where you're really in the zone, where you're really in the moment and you're present and you're at this perfect level of attentiveness to do well at a particular task. I totally know this. I play music and there are moments when you're just, this is that people describe it as a moment of kind of losing yourself and becoming very invested in the the moment. And it usually means that you perform better, not necessarily, but people in flow states having that subjective feeling usually perform better. It's this sort of turning off part of the brain that uh, we don't know a lot about, but it's cool that someone like Dr. McCormick is trying to figure out what that actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And it really dovetails nicely into some of the interest that Dr. McCormick has outside of neuroscience, which is related to his work translating neuroscience concept to Eastern cultures, in particular Buddhism. He spends a lot of time in our conversation talking about his his trips over to Tibet and his relationship with Tibetan Buddhists, teaching them and exchanging uh, his knowledge for their knowledge, um, his neuroscience knowledge for their knowledge about Buddhist concepts. And it's absolutely that was one of my favorite parts of the interview was um, him talking about that. I am so excited to hear about that. I think hopefully there will be some words of wisdom about how we can become a little bit less selfish and more community focused. Uh, I know that that is a lot of what Buddhism focuses on and uh, I can't, can't wait to hear. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear a neuroscientist perspective on on these issues. And before we get to the interview, if you'll indulge me, please, I'd like to take you through a little exercise in the spirit of of centering oneself. Oh, so good. You, I would I would love to. Yeah, let me get. Uh, I would like you just to have a blank mind, and I'd like you to imagine your inner ear is is the center of the universe, hmm. and all all life is flowing through that very central part of your ear, that central part that is the cochlea. I can feel it. It's it's doing so. It's ooh. It's, it's doing something weird. Now I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to ask you, I'd like to invite you, Anthony, to just perk it. I'm so relaxed right now. I can't possibly perk anything. Let it go. Perk that cochlea. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's start the interview with Dr. David McCormick. Before, like, neuroscience was a thing, even, I mean, I don't know when you would technically, it's first started, but, you know, yeah. That was a good Very question. individual people around doing neuroscience, but, yeah, like, Cajal or Goldie. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Galvani was a neuroscientist. I don't know much about him, yeah. 1792 was, he's published his first book. That's amazing. It, animal electricity. Yeah, animal electricity? Yeah. Like the, not electric eel stuff, or... No, that predates uh, him. Electric fish goes back a couple of thousand years, but they didn't, uh, you know, so here's, a, we have a little bit of time. So, yeah, uh, we may have started already. 
there was a debate about electricity, whether static electricity, atmospheric electricity, and animal electricity were one and the same or not. Okay? Yeah. Benjamin Franklin, for example. Sure. Atmospheric electricity. So people had developed methods to store static electricity, the Leyden jars, like a passer. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so there were debates about, well, electric fish, when you get shocked by an electric fish, you put your hand in the fish tank. So they put, you know, did experiments, for example, where they said, well, what conducts electricity from the Leyden jar? A wire does. A glass rod doesn't. A wood stick doesn't. So they put a wire in the fish tank, and sure enough, you get shocked. You put a, a wood stick, you know, put in a glass rod, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the things that conduct electricity, you know, static electricity also conduct animal electricity, right? But then there were some silliness going on. Like, well, what's the other properties of static electricity? Well, the jar gets very dusty because it attracts dust because of the static electricity. Mm. Oh. And fish don't attract <laughs> dust. <laughs> fish don't get dust. Yeah. <laughs> and another one, which is more logical, when, they, when you get shocked, if you take a wire out of the tank and a wire going back to the tank and hold the two wires, mm-hmm. and you get shocked. Uh, the question is whether there's ever a spark between them. Because if you, if you take a wire out of a Leyden jar, yeah. you can see the spark yeah, in the dark, enough. right? Yeah. So in the late 1700s, people were doing experiments where they put two wires as close as they could from the fish tank, yeah. and they never saw a spark. But then what they did was, I can't remember exactly who it is, he took aluminum foil or some kind of foil, put it, the two wires at the end of the strip of foil, then took a very sharp surgical blade and made a really small slit and then complete darkness and you could see a little spark going across when the fish, you know, when the electric fish That's discharged. Amazing. Yeah. So it just had to be close enough essentially. Well it's a very small amount of voltage. Yeah. Uh, the the larger the voltage, the bigger the charge can go. Yeah. You know? And they had to have a very small slit to see that. Yeah. So this was starting to accumulate evidence that maybe animals use electricity. Galvani came along and uh, by accident, he was working with his nephew named Jean Aldini. And, and uh, Galvani and Aldini were working in the lab and they had frog legs, mm-hmm. all right, freshly dissected frog legs. And they were trying to figure out what makes the legs jump or not because you can squeeze the nerve and the leg would jump. And the prevailing hypothesis was that from many years, centuries before, was that the nerve conducts fluid. Sure. And this is Descartes' thing. Right? Yes. So the fluid. fluid comes from the ventricles and fills yeah. the, the muscle. Right after Descartes, while Descartes was still alive, that was disproved by a Dutch guy named Swammerdam. Really? How did he disprove it? He put the muscle in a syringe, like a glass syringe. So the needle of the syringe was a bubble, and you could see the volume of the syringe changed. Then he had the nerve come out of the syringe, and he touched the nerve, and the muscle contracted, but the volume didn't change at all. Yeah. So if liquid was going into the muscle to inflate it, then the volume would change. Mm-hmm. You know. So he said there's no volume change. It's not inflating. It's just changing structure. Yeah. You know? So back to Galvani and Ginaldini. So they, by accident, touched a electrostatically charged scalpel to the frog leg and the frog leg jumped because mm-hmm. they had these laden jars around and everything and they had got this static electricity buildup on it yeah. on their instrument and touched it and they did it again and then they realized wow we can make muscles contract with electricity and then they applied the electricity to the nerve mm-hmm. and the nerve also caused the muscle to, to contract they said well 
If electricity can drive the nerve, maybe the nerve carries electricity. Boom. Boom. <laughs> that was it. That's yeah. awesome. Is and that was in the 1790s, essentially. Yeah, that when all that exactly. was going on. Yeah, yeah. Are you? Is that one of your things? Are you really into history and especially the history of neuroscience? Well, you know what's interesting is that we like to think of ourselves as very modern and advanced, but we got here somehow. Of course. Right. And there's a thread that goes back through time to Galvani and beyond that makes sense. And I and I just felt like I needed to connect that thread. How did we... Because I picked up neuroscience as a student, and I just walked into a lab, and they taught me, and I didn't know where the methods came from and where those people were taught or where those yeah. people were taught. You just jump in the middle of it. You, you just jump in the middle of it. Yeah. And that's how it is for every group of students. They come in the middle of things now, and they think, oh, you know, we're so advanced now because we have these new recording methods and stuff. Well, where did that come from, and how and how is it different? What what is when you say advanced? What does that mean? You know what I mean? And so I I looked into that, and it's a fascinating story. Just if I could really finish real quick on the Galvani one, please do. So Volta, where the word volt came from, famous physicist at the time of Galvani, didn't really believe Galvani's thesis that electricity was being conducted down the nerves. One of the experiments that Galvani had done was that he found that if he put frog legs on an iron hook and then touched it with a different metal, it caused the legs to jump, something non-iron. And that's where Volta got suspicious about it. And he said, you know what? I've found that if you put two dissimilar metals in a salt solution, it generates electrical current. And that's where the battery came from, mm -hmm. voltaic pile. So Volta invented the voltaic pile. And then Galvani and his nephew, Aldini, used the voltaic piles to do their experiments to, to stimulate the nerves and frog legs and stuff. Cause it went back and forth. Yeah. Volta was very popular and very well respected. So Galvani ended up kind of being disrespected and people didn't believe it. They thought that the legs were jumping just because electrical current irritated the muscle. Mm -hmm. yeah. It wasn't actually being conducted down the nerve. Even though Galvani's kind of prime experiment was he put a frog leg on a table, put the nerve across the leg to another leg from another frog. And if he made this one contract with electricity, then the other one would contract too. And he said, well, there's something conducted to the nerve yeah. that would go down and make the other, and it must be electricity. So Galvani was kind of disrespected and a uh, bit bitter and and so on. People didn't believe his thesis about animal electricity. So Aldini decided he wanted to uh, support his uncle by proving how important animal electricity was. I have his books also. It's called Essay on, on Galvanism. It's published in 1804. And um, so he went around especially in England and in France, to public decapitations of people. And he reanimated their bodies with electricity. So, so the body is just lying there. And yeah. He just put a battery up to it. Yes, exactly. He had to take piles and he would do public demonstrations. You know, a criminal would be beheaded. He would take the heads and the bodies and he'd rush over to a bench and then he would hook up the voltaic piles and he would make their faces come alive and their tongue to stick out and their eyes to pop open and he would make their arms flail about and so on. And one of the people that either read about or saw this was Mary Shelley. And that's where, you know, 
was yep. at the at the same time one of the other big themes in neuroscience in science was the ability of a, of man to form a new species with darwin's theory of evolution well, how come man couldn't form a new species? So she coupled together the two big news stories of the time, which is evolution, forming species, and animal electricity to animate that. Yep. You know, that's why Frankenstein gets hit by a bolt of lightning to bring him to life. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. No, this is this is the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> do you have? I don't know what comes next. Oh, there's a complete chain, you know, between yeah. then and now. Um, I followed it up to about the 1850s or so. There were a professor named Bois Raymond who was in Germany who took the frog legs and he did the actual first recordings of actual potentials. Mm-hmm. And he did it on something called a string galvometer. Uh, a string galvometer had a, an actual string and it vibrated according to voltage. And they would shine a light on the string and you would see the shadow of the string on the wall and you would mark the position of the string um, as a measure of the voltage so he was the first person to record an axe potential and this is an 1850 or so range 1830s uh so i thought wow wouldn't it be fun to have a string galvanometer you know so i looked up string galvanometers actually one string galvanometer weighs like a thousand pounds it's a huge thing it takes up this entire room yeah so i had no i thought a string galvanometer is like this little thing that would sit on your desktop you know yeah yeah Yeah. i'm sure if we got apple to make it they could miniaturize it yeah you could have one on your iphone yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so uh yeah there's a there's a, a line of electrophysiology all the way up to modern day that uh, is you know if you care to there there are very good books out there on the the amazing electric fish for example is one it's a history of uh, of of uh, galvani volta the controversies and other you know you can read about these types yeah. of things if you get interested yeah. absolutely were you always into science or can you identify some things early on that triggered that interest? Yeah. So I didn't know that I was training to be a scientist when I was a child, but I was. Yeah. Because I spent all my time out in the garage tinkering with things. They were usually mechanical things, mini bikes, go-karts, motorcycles, bicycles, and also electrical things like televisions and radios. I built a heat kit radio, shortwave radio and stuff when I was, that was back in the early 60s. You know, I didn't know that I was basically doing then what I do now, which is go in the garage and build things and try and understand how they work. Yeah. And uh, so when I went to college, because I came from a family of engineers, I thought it was going to be in engineering. But then I decided at the last minute to be in psychology because I thought people were more interesting than things. But once I get into psychology, I realized it wasn't it was too soft. I couldn't pin it down exactly. Where I'm a professor of psychology now, so I can say that. <laughs> um, but then somebody, uh, a friend introduced me to his father's lab, and he had a neuroscience lab. Yeah. And I thought, wow, neuroscience, that's perfect. That's the engineering of psychology. You know, the, the neuroscientists are figuring out how behavior works at the resistors, transistors level, yeah. you know? So I said, I'm, I'm there. That's what I want to do. So that, that was the beginning of a neuroscience career. That's awesome. Where did you start off in the brain um, in your graduate work? What questions were you asking? This is an interesting topic because what I found is that progress is made by people that are willing to try something different. Okay. You know, of course, progress is made by keeping your nose at a grindstone and falling. But sometimes you have to keep your eyes open for opportunity. So I started in grad school working in a lab on learning and memory. Mm-hmm. The problem was that in the lab that worked on conditioned eye blink reflexes for, as a model of learning memory, 
was that you could remove the hippocampus. And for this particular task, the animal didn't care. It, it didn't need its hippocampus. So everybody thought the hippocampus, because of HM, was responsible for learning memory. But in this particular task, it's not necessary. So here's an opportunity. There's got to be some brain structure that's necessary. It's stored in the brain somewhere. You know, where is it? So let's just do some crude experiments to narrow down where it is. So we knew the cortex wasn't necessary, the hippocampus wasn't necessary, the thalamus is for communicating to the cortex, so where else could it be? I was reading a book on by Eccles about the importance of cerebellum in learning and memory, motor tasks, so I said, well, I'll just suck out the cerebellum, and if nothing happens, then we know it's not the cerebellum, maybe it's the brainstem. Mm -hmm. So we trained a couple of rabbits to blink their eyes to the tone, went in, sucked out the entire cerebellum, sewed them back up, waited a couple of weeks, put them back in the chamber. They completely forgot the task, couldn't learn it again. It was it was unbelievable. Yeah. And then, you know, we refined that a lot. Refined, refined, refined. Did recordings, stimulation, lesions, and, uh, you know, got to a point where we had, a, I think, a reasonable circuit, you know, that circuit busting type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that work still goes on today. We're still identifying all the particular parts, but now it's a little more refined, right? Yeah. So neuroscience to me, or science in general, is a gradual focusing of the lens. Yeah. You know, you start with a fuzzy view, and then the next generation of tools, and people come along and they, they focus a little bit, gets a better view. Yeah. Sometimes things you think were one thing or another, oh, that's a tree, and it turns out that's not a tree, it's a house, you know, because mm -hmm. you, you realize you were wrong, you know. Yeah. But it's a gradual focusing of the picture. Yeah. Can we become too focused? And I guess everything's just physics eventually, you know. Yeah. If we're, we're looking too close to things, it, it becomes very complicated very quickly, I guess. And our tools need to be very, very sophisticated. I mean, this is a technological problem. So there's a definitely been a, a somewhat of a shift in neuroscience over the, last, over the time I've been involved, which is about 40 years. Early on, the questions were most important. And the tools were guided according to the questions. Yeah. And nowadays you get the sense that the tools are most important. And people pick the questions they can answer with those tools. I'm not sure one is better than the other, but it's definitely a, a, a shift. But I would say that it's very important to have various levels of view. So while you're focusing on the details, don't forget about the big picture. And, and if you're working on the big picture and you find some details that you could explore and then go for it you know mm -hmm. what what does it mean to understand something this is an important word understand everybody has some level of understanding of how to use their phone you know they swipe this way or they push that and things happen but very few of us have a detailed understanding of how the phone works at the transistor level or even at the organizational level of of this circuits for that and this circuits for that so we all have some level of understanding so my feeling is a complete understanding means that you go from the behavior of the object all the way down to the nitty-gritty without skipping any levels. You collectively, perhaps, as a, as a group, we can go from behavior of a person to brain areas to neural circuits to neurons to cell biology. I don't think you need to go to quantum physics, but, you know, you could go down to a certain level and then yeah. you don't skip levels. And then I would say that's a, a deep uh, level of understanding. Yeah. If your understanding means I knock out a gene and the animal does something funny, you know, that's a superficial level of understanding. You mm -hmm. know, it goes across the levels, but it skips all these ones in between, you know, so. Do you think we're at that point where we can start getting towards that deeper level of understanding in terms of 
the technology available and the interest and funding and whatnot coming towards neuroscience? It depends a lot on the question that you're asking. So there are certain questions that are immediately addressable that can go to that deep level of understanding. And I'll admit it, I'm an opportunist. I've tried to keep my eye open for those things and go for it. So for example, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. uh, when the brain generates rhythms, it's in a low dimensional state that's understandable. So when you're asleep, you generate two dominant rhythms, slow waves and spindle waves. And they're generated by the entire thalamus and cortex. And it's just like they're marching in unison. Well, this is a very low dimensional state that's even replicated in a slice of tissue in a dish or even a culture. So this is a something on the EEG level and is behaviorally relevant that we've actually been able to detail at the circuit level, at the cell level, at the synapse level, at the ion channel level, and even some biochemistry of it, that you feel like you have a pretty deep understanding of that. Now, when people ask me what they're for, I don't know exactly <laughs> what they're for, yeah. you know, but we can say a lot about how they're generated. You know, I could say what they're bad for, and that's epilepsy, because a lot of epileptic seizures, which are, again, a simple state of the brain, is a perversion of the normal activity that occurs in you or I uh, when you're asleep or drowsy which is the slow oscillation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Has that been the focus of your research so far, or maybe the earlier half of your career? Yeah. Um, specifically, I guess, kind of how did you get interested in that? And what things have you uncovered about these mm -hmm. slow oscillations? So we got interested in this because we were using the slice technique to keep pieces of brain alive in the chamber, including human brain. We would go to the operating room and get pieces of, of brain from someone who's having surgery for epilepsy. Mm -hmm. So it almost goes back to Galvani, you know, and, uh, and, and, and his nephew, uh, Aldini. So we would take brain back to the lab, keep it alive, record its activity, and so on. And what we saw was in the resting state, the brain was generating activity as if the, the person or the animal was deep asleep. Yeah. So now, once you have an observation of a network behavior that's simple in a way, and in a controlled environment, like the slice in in vitro, you could apply the power of the methods to detail the mechanisms, you know. And so we were able to march through the mechanisms to figure out, you know, how is this activity generated? What is it? What, what does it mean for the, for the local circuit to be generating it? Yeah. You know, yeah. and then we could pervert it into a seizure. Remember, this tissue came from an epileptic. Mm -hmm. So... You can do that in a dish by blocking inhibition, just a little bit. You don't have to do a lot. You block inhibition or reduce inhibition. The recurrent excitation that's characteristic of the cortex that allows us to be human so we can have thoughts that go around our heads, that recurrent excitation gets uncontrolled and it starts running away and generates a seizure as a perversion of the normal activity. So the slow oscillate, whoa, 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 that occurs in you and I when we're drowsy or asleep, goes whoa, 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 whoa. Like that becomes a seizure, becomes a pathological rhythm. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people worked on that, did a really good job of figuring out the neural mechanisms of, uh, of seizures. And so you did a lot of this stuff in Slice, and you made a transition from your lab being Slice-based to a little mm. bit more um, in vivo and behavior. Yeah. What was the motivation to do that, and uh, what were the challenges? So the motivation is that a Slice is a, is a microcosm. It's a, it's a little piece of brain 
whereas the uh, an animal or a person is the complete thing. And so you want to, with the tools that are available nowadays, you can uh, hope to go back to the behaving person or animal, uh, especially animals, and be able to then address the cellular mechanisms, the the kind of intermediate level of knowledge that we talked about earlier that makes things feel like you deeply understand them in the behaving animal. So I saw the opportunity based on the on the development of the tools. Now, I also had a desire because remember I said I start out in psychology and I'm still a professor of neuroscience and in psychology. And I don't want to be a psychologist of a piece of brain tissue in a dish. I want to be a psychologist of, of animal or people behavior, right? So I'm always keeping my eye open for things that have the opportunity to understand on a neural basis, but are of interest to behavioral basis. And that's where we are now with our study of optimal performance. You know, what state is the brain in when you're performing your best? I think a lot of people are sort of generally interested in that topic. It's nice to talk to somebody that has studied and really looked at the neural correlates or at least starting to uncover in these animal models uh, what optimal performance looks like in the brain. Could you speak to what your model is? Yeah, so our model is uh, a detection task. So we have uh, mice listening to sounds, and if there's a pure tone, a beep in that sound, they can lick and get a sugar water reward. So they hear lots of sounds, and every once in a while there's a beep. If they lick right at that moment, they get their reward. So they're motivated to do this task. We make it hard by making the beep very soft. And then we measure their success. And we notice that the ability of the animal to do this task varied on a moment-to-moment basis. I related to somewhere between seminar behavior or classroom behavior where on a moment-to-moment basis you're attentive or you're not attentive, you're thinking about something else or maybe even you get drowsy, or sleep driving, I'll call it that, where you're going down the road and you're able to keep the car on the road, but every once in a while you kind of nod off and, and your car hits the the. Uh, the things on the, the side. Blots, the dots. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you have them here, but in yeah, California. Yeah, so. And you, you go, and you wake up, and you get back on the road, you know. Yeah. So we found that our animals are doing that, that every, almost continuously, they're changing their attentiveness, so to speak. So then we had a, we found that we had a good model for looking at how attentiveness or engagement affects performance and what the neural mechanisms of that are. Interesting thing there was a certain state that was optimal for the, for the animal to do the task. That optimal state tend to be about moderately aroused, not overly, not hyper, not drowsy, somewhere in between. It makes intuitive sense. And what's the neural mechanisms of that? Well, it turns out that the same neuromodulatory pathways that control your periphery, like your heart rate, your gut, your pupil diameter, your skin conductance, are also controlling your brain state. So by measuring the peripheral nervous system, the pupil diameter, for example, we could tell what the state of the central nervous system was, and then we could tell if the animal was going to get the trial correct or incorrect and how he was going to get it incorrect, just by watching the peripheral state of the nervous system. It's it's given us a lot of clues as to variability and optimal state and neural mechanisms of how the brain controls its own excitability, how it stays on task. Now I realize that, you know, high-performance athletes or musicians are not actually just good at the neural pathways that allows them to swing a tennis racket or play the piano, but they're 
exceptional at keeping their brain in the proper state to do that task. If the tennis ball is coming at them at, you know, 80 miles an hour or something, if their brain is not in the optimal state for them to react, they're going to miss. They're going to make an error. And so they have to stay on for maybe hours at a time in the in this zone, being in the zone. In high-pressure environments, too. In a high-stress high environment, yeah. So it's really a, a phenomenal thing that they achieve. I got interested in this zone, so to speak, on a more personal level. Because if psychologists have found that if you randomly buzz someone on their phone and say, how happy do you feel and what were you doing? It turns out people report the highest levels of happiness when they've got so absorbed into something that they've lost the sense of self. Present in the moment. Yes, they're present in the moment. And that's called flow. So when you get so absorbed into what are you doing, music, art, athletics, whatever, that you lose the sense of self you actually come to a place of peace and a peace that's very pervasive. You're united basically with what you're doing. This is very similar to another aspect of my life, which is Buddhism. So I teach, I'm the leader of the New Haven Insight Meditation Sangha. We have about 700 members. And so I teach meditation there and I've been doing it for about seven years. And I'm also now, because of my joint role as a meditator and teacher of meditation and neuroscientist, part of the Emory Tibetan Science Initiative, which travels to Tibetan monasteries to teach monks. In the three monasteries we visit, there's 15,000 monks. Wow. Um, we teach neuroscience. They want to learn neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. This is the first curriculum change in their educational program in 700 years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So you're literally stepping back in time. Yeah. Because they see maybe a handful of Westerners a year besides yeah. us. And you're stepping back in time to interact with the people that think very differently than the way we do. And the thing you're most struck by is the fact that they're uniformly calm, present, engaged, peaceful, content, and they don't have they're they're allowed to have their robes, a wooden bowl, and a cell phone. Actually, oh wow, <laughs> they do have cell phones yes, now. Yes. Oh they no, started like three or four years. They started ago. tweeting. Okay. Yes. No. I have Facebook friends yeah. from Tibetan monasteries, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm not sure. It's a slippery slope, right? Yeah, <laughs> Maybe yeah, this yeah. is a bad idea, but uh, they're allowed. But anyhow, they don't have much. Yeah. But they have community. They have connectedness. They have presence. And they, this, they practice this state in their readings, in their memorizations, in their debate, their form of debate. They practice being absorbed, being in flow. And in Buddhism, one of the main tenets is that centering a life on yourself is a, a condition ripe for suffering, un, unpleasantness. Yeah. And centering your life on community and connectedness is a an ingredient of happiness or lack of suffering. So Tibetan Buddhism especially is centered around compassion and empathy. So last year when I was there to drive this point home was the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday. So they have a their main um, hall for meetings holds 10,000 monks. So I was sitting at the front with the other teachers and we we're looking out onto a sea of thousands of Tibetan monks sitting. They always sit on the on their mats on the floor, chanting in unison. 
And I'm asking, you know, what are they chanting about? Well, they're chanting about, may all things be happy. May all beings be at peace. May all beings be in harmony. They believe that this chanting actually has an effect on the world outside their local environment. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. It, it almost, it, it just brings tears to your eyes. It yeah, does. Yeah. It does. And then you come back to the U.S. and... Uh, Immediately, people are, you know, upset that they have to wait five minutes in line to get their Starbucks, and then the temperature's not exactly correct. And yeah, you know. <laughs> all of our first world problems are all trivial. our first world problems. <laughs> Do you see that as a sort of remedy to the sort of anxieties of Western lifestyle? And do you maybe use what you've studied in neuroscience to be a proponent of that way of thinking, or? or looking at life? Well, uh, I get asked this question a lot. What, do, what have I learned in neuroscience that helps me with meditation? Yeah. I'll answer that one right away because it's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing. So, awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> the reason is, is because we don't know the neuroscience of meditation well sure. enough to... I mean, you could name brain structures that turn on or off Fruit or so on. goes down or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. But it's doesn't, not going to help you. It's like yeah. this. When, when my son was little, he came to me and he said he wanted to learn how to play golf. So I said, great, that sounds fun. I don't know how to play golf, but I'll help you. We'll, we'll learn. So I went off and got some golf clubs and some golf balls. Then like a week later, I said, hey, I got some golf clubs and golf, golf balls. So let's go out and hit some balls around and we'll learn how to play golf. And he goes, no, no, I already know how to play. And I said, what do you mean you know how to play? And he says, yeah, I went to the library and got a book and now I know how to play golf. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it is with meditation. It's the same with like athletics. You want to do it, you got to do it. You know, you got to spend hours and hours and hours and hours doing it. You got to make it a regular practice. And then you get good at it. You get better and better and better. You get practice effects. And and you need a teacher, too, that knows the ins and outs of what you're doing. And it's just the matter of doing, you know, and doing it correct. Doing, I don't want to say correctly, but, you know, doing it in a way that's uh, skillful. We use the word skillful, which means progressing towards the lessening of suffering. I would say that... It is a very useful tool to help alleviate our first, some of our first world problems, which are, to my mind, much of society is centered around promoting anxiety and stress. The news media wants us stressed out, so we watch their product all the time. You know, our jobs are stressful. It's a very competitive environment because we, capitalism drives, is, thrives on comp- competition. Maybe even our family lives get to be stressful too, you know. We, we live under these very stressful, anxiety-provoking circumstances. And one of the mechanisms to help alleviate that is through not only meditation, but understanding from a Buddhist perspective the nature of stress and the, and the nature of decreased disquietude or anxiety or suffering. Now, the trick is, and this is a difficult trick for us Westerners, it's a very, very difficult trick, if you ask a Westerner, why are you learning meditation and so on, they'll do exactly what I just said. They'll say, because I'm stressed or I'm anxious and I want to get calmer and so on. You know, if you ask the Tibetan monks why they do it, you know what they say? It's not about them. It's about other people. They say, I'm doing this for the betterment of all beings. That's the trick. If you can actually center your life around your community, not because it's better for you, but it's better for them, that stress will go away. If you can get so involved in something, you forget the sense of yourself, like in flow. You'll feel happy. I liken it, I tell the students, it's like going to sleep. You don't sit down and say, okay, go to sleep now. Go to sleep now. I'm going to sleep now. You're never going to go to sleep. You have to forget about going to sleep to go to sleep. If you want to be happy, you have to forget about happy in a way. You have to 
quit making that the center of you're the center of your story of everything and this is what you need to do for you it's a it's a it's a quandary right so you have to almost forget that you have to try and center your life on others and community and being connected and being present to enjoy the the state of of being that uh, that uh, people that have learned to do that enjoy yeah wow that's awesome <laughs> Wholeheartedly agree. I noticed something on your website. I don't know if you relate it to this uh, more Eastern thinking, but you you have this notion of the holistic neuron. Yes. That it operates in a mixed mode, analog and digital. Yeah. People don't characterize the neuron as a whole and in both of these modes. Yeah. It may not be related to this other part of your life, but um, it, it's an interesting parallel how you look at the neuron. It is very related because... It's very obvious as a biologist that everything is connected, but we don't treat things that way. We, we tear them apart and we study little pieces. You know, un, an unfortunate fallout of our neuroscience programs is students come in and I ask them, why do you want to be a neuroscientist? And they say, oh, the brain is so cool. I want to understand why, how the brain works, how people think, you know, what drives behavior. And then some years later, they, I go to their dissertation talk and it's all about some acronym, you know, and how it interacts with other acronyms. And I'm like, what, what happened? And that's what I was saying by the holistic neuron. You can't understand a neuron unless you put it back in the circuit. And you can't understand a circuit unless you put it back in the brain. You can't understand the brain unless you put it back in the body. And you can't understand a person unless you look at society. You know, it's obvious. And not only just society, but also interacting with the earth. We're, we're all intimately intertwined in, in one ecology, you know, one earth. It's horrible how we think and it's horrible how we treat things. We make things centered around one small part of this whole and then we make stupid decisions because of our, that perspective of that one small part. And I was trying to say that about the neuron. You can't, you, if you want to understand the neuron, you got to understand how, what other neurons it's connected to. What is it talking to? What is it trying to say? What's being said to it? What is the collective trying to do? And, and luckily, neuroscience is going back. It's, it's going back in a very strong way towards actual behavior. And right now, our behavior is very poor. It's like animals doing little tasks in little unnatural environments. But you can imagine one day we're going to be actually recording neurons and people while they have a conversation with somebody else, you know, or they're doing something much more, you know, what we've been designed to do by evolution. So that's what I mean by the holistic neuron. It, it's it's a really imperative that we keep that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, gee, this is awesome. Uh, are you able to maintain any hobbies outside of your neuroscience work? It sounds like you have interests, do a lot of reading, history. Yeah, uh, one of the things uh, I try to live, I not just talk the talk, I try to walk the walk. So when our son and daughter uh, moved away on their own after college, my wife and I moved into the, the college, the dormitory. We don't call them dorms, it's a, but we call them residential colleges. And I live with 400 students between the age of 18 and 22 years old. And we have our, our dog and we're, we're part of the collective. We're part of the family. Yeah. You know? It's a community and, uh, it's wonderful in many ways. First of all, this, the students are amazing people. They're very talented, very smart, very motivated. They're on an upswing in their life. They're very excited about life and, uh, they're very positive and they're, they're a varied interest. And varied perspectives, you know, people from all walks of life, from many different countries, from many different socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, they're interested in many different things. It could be Egyptology. It could be world affairs. It could be global health issues. It, it, it could be 
you know, opera, it can be anything. And it's just great to be around people like that and talk to them about what they're, what they're interested in. So that's one thing I do. And that takes up a fair amount of, of my time. And another thing I do is you might find this kind of funny, but so I live in the college and I work at the medical school and they're about a mile and a half apart. And I walk back and forth twice a day mm-hmm. and I take my dog with me and I have this fluffy white Samoyed dog. Yeah. And everybody on campus knows this dog for some reason. I guess they just, it's very obvious. <laughs> and that gave me a new perspective on people because when you have a fluffy white dog, everybody's friendly. Oh, yeah. And the community is very connected. Like they come up and they pet the dog and then you meet people. Great icebreaker. It's a great icebreaker. Now, what do you learn about people? Well, people love to be connected and talk to other people, but they don't have that icebreaker. Yeah. And there's a different levels of connectedness. And what I found in general as a very gross generalization is the people that have the least in society, like the seemingly homeless people and so Mm -hmm. on, are actually the ones that are most empathetic and connected than the people that have the most in society, like the upper administrators and so on. So the homeless people will come up and say, oh my God, what a beautiful dog. And they'll, they'll pet the dog and they'll be so empathetic with the dog, you know. And then the students, they have that too, but they're often busy going to class or something. And then you get up to the upper administrators and they're just like, they don't even see a dog. What dog? There's no dog. You know, I got to get to this or I got to get to that. They're busy people. But, you know, which do you want to be? I ask myself all the time, what do I want to be? I don't know. I'd rather be the person that's connected. I'd rather be the person that's living, you know, in in the present. Even if that means that I can't get all the things done that I want to get done, you know. You got to make time to live. And that's something I learn on a daily basis from, from those two things. Yeah. Very strong in practice, work-life balance type of thing. Yeah. Type of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been extremely fortunate to be able to be successful as a professor and achieve what I feel is a reasonable work-life balance. I think it's a, it, it's a, it, it's a doable uh, goal. It's yeah. an achievable goal. If you just be efficient about work so that you have lots of free time to have life, then I, I feel like you have a better chance of achieving that balance. Yeah. Um, have you ever been in a sensory deprivation chamber? Nope, there is one in Connecticut. I thought about going. I looked it up, but I haven't done it. I haven't done it. Yeah. You know, uh, a common thing for people who do serious meditation is to go and retreat for at least 10 days. Yeah. And they'll meditate. I haven't done that yet. I, but I have a colleague who went for five days in a sensory deprivation chamber. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And meditated. And he said, he, he you just hallucinate wildly. Yeah. I've done it just for 90 minutes, though. Yeah. That sounds intense. Yeah. And what was your experience? It, it was it was nice for the first hour. Uh, I was a little anxious. I'm like, what's going to happen? Just kind of floating around. Like, it's a very fun, novel feeling. And then you start getting into... Just like the last 20 minutes, you start getting like, oh, you're you're in a different state and you're seeing things, thinking about things, but then it's kind of over. It seems like something that you need a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they often say that, but the sensation is really interesting. So I can I can speak a little bit to that in meditation. There's something called jhana states. And uh, jhana states are uh, states of experience or non-experience during meditation. And um, the first four are called the material jhana states. So you sit and, so focusing your mind on your breath, for example, is just the very beginning. It's just learning how to be present. And that's kind of a prerequisite to doing anything else. So focusing your mind on your breath and having it so that you're not wandering off all the time. 
for some reason, for a lot of people, this will transform into a state of feelings of joy or bliss. That's like the first jhana state. So you get this intense feeling of joy or bliss while you're focused on your breath. And when I say focused on your breath, I don't mean you're sitting there going, oh, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out words verbally. I mean, you're just being present. You're just experiencing your breath directly. And so you can progress through, you start losing the sense of self and your everyday concerns and worries and thoughts so that you're just simply present and you start having these very, very positive emotions. Now, as a neuroscientist, it's very interesting, you know, in my mind, why does that happen? I'm not sure exactly why, but, you know, like we talked about before, people that are completely absorbed into something and they lose their their storyline, yeah. their self-perpetuated storyline, feel yeah, self-awareness, a very positive Ego, kind something. of, yeah. they, they feel they feel a positive state. Now, when you progress through these jhanas, you get to the fifth jhana. This is when you lose all sense of experience. Now, most people, well, not all sense of experience, all sense of sensory experience. And that's why I brought it up. Sensory experience and thought. Most people, including myself, when you're, when you're told this, you can't even imagine what that means. But it's something like this. You're sitting there very quietly and your eyes are closed and you're present with your breath. You're not thinking about your breath. You don't have thoughts. You know, thoughts meaning verbal thoughts. You're not hearing a voice in your head. You're not listening to voice. There is no voice in your head, all right? And there's no visual imagery. There's no auditory imagery. And the sounds that happen to be going around, if there are any, or the feelings that of your body or something, they're there, but they're very distant, like, like stars in the sky. You know, you're not looking at the stars. They're just there. And what happens is that you lose all the identifiers of yourself. You lose all of the labels of yourself. You you lose the storyline. So much so that all, all you have is a feeling of being present. You just have the feeling that you are. It's a feeling. It's a direct feeling. You are. And that's that's it. It's very simple. So some people, when they get to that state, they feel this unification with everything. I haven't personally felt that, but they feel this unification and they find it very uplifting to them. Now, when you come out of it, what happens is that all those identifiers and all those pieces come back and you say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm a professor. I'm at, I'm at Yale. I'm, I'm a neuroscientist. You didn't even, you weren't a neuroscientist, you know, a minute ago or whatever. You were just, you just were. That's it. And it becomes very interesting to see how your personality and you, what you call, what people call you or what you would tell people are, is you, when someone says, who are you? You would give them all these identifiers is a, as a construction. It's a, it's a construction of multiple parts put together both by your conception of yourself and by other people's conceptions of yourself and your role you play in society. You know what I mean? And I think it's a really important lesson for people to learn how to break away from those preconceived notions and storylines because they perpetuate uh, and they limit who you really are. What does your family expect from you? What does your university expect from you? What does your employer or what are, what are people you interact with? What do you expect from you? What do you expect from them? It's all this interaction that, that kind of coalesces you into X, Y, or Z. You know what I mean? And to realize that I think is beneficial to people's level of confidence and joy in their lives because they can realize that they are not this thing mm -hmm. yeah. that's immutable over time. There's room for improvement. There's room for change. And they don't have to be this or have to be that. That's awesome. I mean, geez. Can you think of a time that you've maybe the hardest time you've ever left? 
maybe recently, something silly. The first thing that came to my mind is free association was when I watched Monty Python, The Holy Grail. Yes, and I was like, yes. <laughs> that, that movie had me in hysterics. Yeah, I had to watch it a second time because I missed most of the movie. I was laughing so hard, but that was 12 years old. Sure, so sure, I, sure. I've had some, I've had no, some really hearty laughs between yeah, 12 and yeah. now. But that's, that's like sure. a pure, yeah. just like childish, you know. Losing gutter. yourself in laughter. Exactly. Something you've never seen before. Your first encounter with this type of humor, I'm sure. Yeah. I feel like I had the same experience with that very movie. That or Spaceballs or, um, but like when the rabbit just goes crazy, you know. That, there's so many classic things from that movie. Yeah, there's so many lines that were picked up and used over and over and over again in pop culture uh, for the longest time. I haven't heard anyone lately, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a great, a great movie. Yeah. Is there anything else that you care about, things that you want people to know about scientists or the way we conduct our work? Well, yeah, there, there's, there's, a, there's a very important thing to know, and that is that everybody tries to understand life. And they, but they go about it in a little bit different way. That this little bit difference makes a profound difference. So everybody has a hypothesis. You know, if somebody asks you, what's life all about? Or what is this all about? Whatever that, and you answer, that's a hypothesis. So we all generate hypotheses about important things. What, what a scientist does is they say, can I think of an experiment that would uh, disprove that hypothesis or test that hypothesis? They're, they're, a, a real scientist isn't thinking, oh, how am I going to, you know, support this hypothesis uh, so that I can become famous by other people patting my back and so on. A real scientist is trying to disprove a hypothesis. They're, they're trying to figure out how to progress the hypothesis to a better hypothesis, yeah? And they try to figure out through a scientific method, which means experiment, observe, check how the observations align or don't align with the hypothesis and then fix the hypothesis and reiterate and keep and as you slowly do that you the true nature of nature slowly comes into focus that's what i mean by that slowly coming into focus but if your mode of being is that oh i have a hypothesis and then they say well okay let's figure out how to test that hypothesis and you say oh no no you can't do that we just have to accept my hypothesis then then it's it's no longer making progress so when I go to, to teach the monks, the monks have many views that are at odds with what we would think. For example, they believe in reincarnation. They believe that all beings, all, all insects, all organisms, all single-cell organisms have uh, sentience. They have a beautiful view of nature that is at odds with our Western view of nature. So I don't go there and tell them they're wrong. I can't tell them they're wrong. I don't know if they're wrong. I might be wrong. Very, but... I can go and say, all right, that's your hypothesis. A scientist, if you want to learn science, a scientist would then say, okay, now I'm going to take that hypothesis and, and see what predictions it makes and design an experiment to test those predictions. And uh, so we're not telling, we're not trying to teach them right or wrong. We're trying to teach them how scientists would approach things. I personally, you know, believe in science as a, as a better method to, to slowly bring things into focus. And I believe in the scientific method. Thank you for being with us today. It was awesome. Thank you. It was great. Great. <laughs> that was really good. Oh, man. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, Went all over the world. Yeah, all exactly. over the universe. Yes. That's it for today's episode. As Dr. David McCormick said, centering your life on community 
and feeling connected is an ingredient for happiness. I completely agree with that statement. How about taking that advice to heart right now and connecting with us? You can leave us a review on iTunes if you like the show. And you can also connect with us on Facebook and at Brain Podcast on Twitter. If you want to support the show, you can head to our website, brainpodcast.com, and there is an Amazon link on the sidebar. Just follow that link, buy some stuff that you are planning on getting anyways, and a portion of your spending will come back to us. We really appreciate all of your support. It means so much to us to know that there are people out there who enjoy our show. So thank you. The music on today's episode was by Noveller. The first track was Trails and Trials from the soon-to-be-released album, A Pink Sunset for No One. And you're listening to Rubicon from the Fantastic Planet LP. Her music is amazing. And if you get the opportunity to see her live, definitely do it. Go check out and purchase her music at noveller.bandcamp.com or at her current label, firerecords.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.